0: Our first reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 39 through 46, and we invite all those that are able to stand out of respect and in solidarity with our brothers and sisters around the world. Hear now what the Lord wants to say to the church this morning. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, gave him strength. In his anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. When he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Invite those who are able to please stand for the second lesson. And I'll be reading from my own Bible. It's a New American Standard, so it may be different than what you read from the, uh, the Bibles that we have out there. As before, it's, um, this Bible's actually older than you are and held together by duct tape. And I know there's a Jeff Foxworthy joke in all of that. <laughs> Nevertheless, let us listen now to the Word of God as we find it in, in Acts 21. And when it came about, that we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Petara. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. And when it came about that our days there were ended, we departed and started on our journey, while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. And then we went on aboard the ship, and they returned home again. And when they had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais. And after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And as we were staying there for some days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent and remarking, The will of the Lord be done. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Has anyone ever stolen your thunder or upstaged you? Now, we have had moments when we have shared a story and somebody out of um, sympathy saying, oh, a similar thing happened to me, and they share the story, a sense of um, camaraderie. I I feel your pain. But other times, someone says, oh, you think that's bad? I can do you one worse, and they upstage you. I remember watching some uh, silly movie, afternoon movie on TV. And the, um, the narrator was this poor, poor young girl who kept being upstaged by her sister. And there's this incident where this girl is being, has gotten married. She has thrown the bouquet, and her sister catches the bouquet, and she says, and guess what? I'm getting married. And immediately, everybody takes the focus off of the bride and onto this sister who's constantly trump- trumping her, her, her other sister. Well, to agree, I had that experience last Sunday. Because, see, the week previous to last Sunday, I began to take some notes on this passage. I had some ideas of where I wanted it to go and I was preparing and then I heard Reverend Hasty preach and talking about the blood, the toil, the sweat, the tears. I'm going, excuse me, those are my themes. (laughs) You're going where I'm supposed to go the following Sunday. You are stealing my thunder. Did you look at my notes while I was out getting coffee? No, especially if he's watching, I don't think you did that. but that was my sensation. But A, I'm gonna go ahead with that theme anyway, and B, to say it's pretty logical because this chapter continues the work of chapter 20. Chapter 20 has Paul's farewell address, series of addresses. He is going to Jerusalem, wrapping up the third missionary journey. He is going back there, and we begin that part, and that's where we were in this chapter. There's an incident in the middle, which I'll go to in a moment, and by the end of the chapter, Paul is a guest of the emperor, shall we say. He is in Roman custody, and that theme will take us through the rest of Acts. From that point onward, Paul is always, one way or the other, a guest of the emperor. What happens in the middle of this chapter, what follows is, of course, Paul ends up in Jerusalem. And he shares with the disciples there all that has taken place of those that have come to Christ throughout, um, I guess, Asia Minor, we, or Turkey, we would say, modern-day Turkey and Greece, and, and all that God is doing. And they're happy, and they're aware that there are many who are opposed to the work of Paul in the Jewish community, and they say, we've, basically, they say, we've got a great idea. We have four men here who have fulfilled, they're Jewish, they've fulfilled a vow, and they're going to the temple to give the offering. Why don't you pay for the offering? Go with them, you pay for it. And it shows to other Jewish people that you're really a middle-of-the-road guy. See, Paul's big point was for Jewish people believing in Christ, following Christ, who wanted to continue to follow their Jewish customs, that was perfectly Okay all right to do. It was not a means to salvation as long as they knew that. To follow their customs of the people was perfectly all right. His big point was for Gentiles. They did not have to first become officially Jewish to become Christian. That was his big point. They do not need this. But if a Jewish person fulfilled, that was perfectly okay. And it showed that to a degree, he, at least he was still a good Jewish boy. He would go there with them. Well, while he's there at the temple, some opponents of Paul spy him there. And, they, and they're thinking, hey, we saw him just the other day with a couple of Gentiles. I'll bet that's who he's got with them. So immediately start this riot. Not surprising, Paul's in the middle of a riot. Same song, next verse. And he's about, to, again, getting in trouble. The Roman officials learn of this. And again, the Roman officials, they like a nice, peaceful empire. They don't like anybody disturbing that peace. And so immediately they go there and they take Paul initially into custody. Now here's a funny piece that happens at the end and I'm going to, to, to read this where, where he says, the guy is talk, talking to him and he says, um, uh, Paul's about to go to the barracks and he says to the commander, may I say something to you? And the commander says, do you know Greek? that tells tells the commander something right there. This guy must be cultured to a degree. That is the language, that's the lingua franca of that larger part of the world. That's what the common language for the eastern part of the Roman Empire. But also says, again, he has some degree of education and culture. He is not a barbarian. Someone who does not speak uh, the language is a barbarian. And apologies to Barbara out there. Oh, the uh, word, how uh, about they came up with the word barbarian? That for the Greeks, they thought anybody who doesn't speak Greek sounds like this bar, 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 bar. It's a put down, okay? You either talk Greek or you talk bar, 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 bar. So obviously he speaks Greek. That it follows. The, the commander says, Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Okay, you're not this other guy that I thought you were. But then Paul says, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia. Again, the southern part of Turkey where he was raised, we would call it today Turkey, the area of Cilicia, the city. And then he adds, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. A citizen of no insignificant city. That's sort of a tongue-in-cheek way of saying, I'm a Roman citizen, buzz me. In a way, someone might say today, oh, I'm from a little crossroads in Georgia. Don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Atlanta. Kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of saying that. And again, we see here that window into Paul. He has that Roman citizenship, born a Roman citizen. He is comfortable in the Greek-speaking world. That would have been his first language. Later, he was taught Hebrew. Hebrew but he's also nevertheless proud of his Jewish heritage. And with those three things, he had entree throughout the society in many places where he could speak. And so it ends there. In this chapter, again, we see him making his farewell address. We see him getting into trouble once again being put into custody of Rome. And it is very much a blood, sweat, and tears moment. But all joking aside about my thunder being stolen, it's a very real part happening here and there are three three themes throughout this chapter that we see throughout of Acts that I wanna cover. We see the work of the Spirit and Paul's confidence And we see the fact that suffering, hardship, is a part of the Christian life. We see the work of the Spirit. In fact, some have called Acts the gospel of the Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the day of Pentecost when the disciples are able to speak to all those gathered in Jerusalem in the language so that they understand, hearing it in their native tongue, even if I can say they spoke Greek or Latin as a second or third language, if they grew up speaking uh, Elamite they were hearing it in Elamite hearing it in their native language and then their new believers being brought about people go to prison but pretty quickly they seem to be getting out and yes Stephen is slain as the first Christian martyr but he is filled with the spirit he is preaching and sees a glimpse of glory as he is dying and calls out about that Saul later Paul but Saul is on the road determined to wipe out Christianity and then God speaks to him on the road knocks him off the donkey he comes to Christ the spirit is at work again in him later in chapter 16 just pulled out this one set here they're on one of the missionary journeys and they are again in modern day turkey and the spirit says do not go this time do not go to the province of asia And that's just the westernmost little kind of little province in the westernmost part of the country go this way. And then later, they're sent up. They want to go up into northern Turkey, Bithynia and Pontus. That's the the names of the provinces. They're ready to go up there. But then the Spirit says, no, no, no. Through a dream, they're told, uh, the man says, calls them out to Macedonia, calls them out to Europe. And that begins the first mission effort in Europe. As a sidebar if anybody says, oh, Christianity, it's a Western European event. You can say, no, it is not. It is an Asian event. And one could even make an argument that it got to Africa, number two, before it got to Europe, number three. So anyway, we see the Spirit leading them in that direction. In our previous chapter, the Holy Spirit let Paul know that you will suffer, that that is in course for you. And In our lesson today, we saw the Spirit at work. They are made aware in verse 4. It says, uh, again, that that the disciples uh, keep telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Here it's indicated that they know about it through the Holy Spirit, and as friends, they are warning him not to do it. He's not being disobedient. Um, In the same way, find myself often talking with friends that I'm always saying, take the cautious route. Probably like nine times out of ten, I'm encouraging the cautious route, and usually my friends don't listen to me, but, uh, and they take the more adventuresome route. Uh, so anyway, this is what they're saying. If you do this, this will happen. And then later the Spirit uh, leads Agabus, the prophet, to enact what will happen, taking off his um, girdle there, his his, uh, foot binds everything together and putting himself like he's in chains and saying, that's what's going to happen to you. The Spirit is at work in the times of triumph as well as the time of trial. So we see the work of the Spirit and we see Paul's confidence. We see it throughout the book of Acts. Paul confidently goes to places and he speaks He might have been a little cocky, but the Spirit has sanctified that cockiness, that ambition, that drive, that type A personality, and sanctified it and directed him. And with confidence, he speaks. He speaks in Athens, a great seat of learning and culture. It would be a very intimidating place to speak, and yet he does it with great confidence. And then in this challenge, he speaks as well. In verse 13, when everyone again is telling him, do not go to Jerusalem, he says, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not ready only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. For Paul, this is his Gethsemane moment, and hence our first lesson from Luke's Gospel. Luke, the author of that gospel, and the author of Acts, when Jesus says in the garden, Not my will, but thine be done. Later in 2 Timothy, Paul writes, For I know whom I have believed. And notice he doesn't say, I know exactly why this is happening. He says, For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day confidence critics might say cocky, maybe it's just his nature and it's been sanctified and used but nevertheless we see Paul's confidence in Jesus Christ throughout acts and again in this chapter and then finally we see that suffering persecution and hardship are part of the picture Paul is led by the Spirit, confident and faithful and trusting and in trouble once again when this chapter ends. The Spirit leads um, believers with great confidence to do the right things throughout the centuries. And sometimes doing the right thing leads to suffering and hardship, a trial of sorts. It can be a full-blown trial, tribulation, persecution, or it can be something more personal and local. Think of what we read in the papers today or see spread on the news uh, what's going on in um, Syria and Iraq through ISIS, where literally Christians are becoming martyrs uh, for their faith. Deny Jesus and live. Say yes to Jesus and die. Literally, brothers and sisters are dying for the faith. We don't hear much about it now, but just a few years ago in Egypt, the point, the plight of the Christians was highlighted there. 10% of the country was Christian. Uh, the Christians were there long before the Muslims, and In fact, historically, one can make an argument that uh, North Africa was a Bible belt uh, at one time, many, many centuries ago. But 10% are Coptic Christians and basically lived in peace as a minority. But when things changed in 2011, began to up the persecution of them. Now, moderate Muslims were often appealing on behalf. There was a big columnist in Cairo saying, "Why, to my fellow Muslims, why are you burning their churches? These Christians are good people. Uh, They pray for us. Uh, They're not a threat. Why are you burning their churches? And that number of 10% has been slowly decreasing as they have fled. Earlier, very early in September, we hosted a couple. They are Presbyterian missionaries. Uh, They serve in a part of the Middle East, and um, they're on sabbatical, and they were giving us an update. And the the lady made an interesting comment. She said, the Arab Spring of 2011 has become a Christian winter. In many of these countries, the Christian minorities were protected in a way uh, by the dictator. The dictator basically kept the peace and nobody picked on them. And that's one reason, odd for us in our Western society, but they would actually be supportive, if not a supporter of the dictator because it kept things at peace for them. But with that one strong central figure out of the picture, they are persecuted and, uh, and oppressed at the chapel of Beeson Divinity School at Samford University. One of the things that they have are busts of six martyrs of the 20th century, one for each continent, inhabited continent, who died in the 1900s, really from the 1940s forward. Uh, each one with an own particular story. There was one man, he was the Anglican Archbishop of Uganda back when Idi Amin was the power guy there. Some of you all remember Idi Amin, the the crazy man in Uganda. And uh, that archbishop stood up to Idi Amin, and one day, there's no archbishop. Another man, uh, actually with the Assemblies of God, was in Iran. And uh, one day, the Ayatollah just kind of got tired of having him around, and he was gone. Others who had suffered for their faith. I get updates through Facebook about International Justice Mission, exciting work they're doing, Uh, young girls delivered from a particular type of trade, Uh, people in oppressive situations not being paid for their work, modern-day slavery, Uh, children uh, getting justice that's been denied them. And it's great to read as they share these updates. But these people go into places doing this good work in the name of the Lord, and often get one hardship after another, one roadblock after another. Now, for us, at least currently in our setting, it's not a situation like that. It can be maybe the rejection, a loss of a friend. I remember someone talking about becoming a Christian and just kind of one day realized one of her friends, a sorority sister, was just blowing her off and just said, what's the problem? And she said, well, I don't like the fact you're a Christian. She said, well, can we talk about it? She says, no, we can't you're out of my life. You're one of them now. Others have shared about, mm, sometimes it means a loss of certain invitations. You know, they're stickering behind your back. Maybe it's not necessarily the loss of a friendship, but a loss of the closeness. You realize now there is a barrier. That person is holding me back. This can also take place in just doing hard work, whatever you're doing, serving serving the Lord. It, you're doing maybe some behind-the-scenes groundwork nobody else really knows it except the Lord, and it seems like everybody else is out playing and you're there, uh, maybe a bit of the Cinderella syndrome. <laughs> Why am I home cleaning up while well, everybody is at the ball? But the Lord has something for me to do, and I must do it. It can be in the care of a loved one. You've made that promise for better or for worse, and you are sticking to it. And it's hard, and it's long but the Lord is with you. The same Holy Spirit that did these great positive things uh, with Paul then sent Paul straight to Jerusalem. Later from Jerusalem, Paul will go to Rome and later die a martyr's death. The Lord gave him confidence to go to Athens and to preach and also gave him that confidence to go to Jerusalem. The road of discipleship can be rocky. Back in August, I was at a gathering in Dallas, and we had two speakers, uh, Kent Carlson and Mike Lucan, pastors of Oak Hills Church. And they had an interesting story to share. They had helped found a church that's considered very seeker-friendly. Now understand, and seeker-friendly, these are trying to reach people who have really no connection with the Christian faith, or a very loose connection, or they've been disconnected for such a long time, it's all new to them. It is a missionary movement, really, within our own country. And to begin to reach the people, you find out, like any other mission effort, well, what are their felt needs? And try to initially reach those, and through that, how the Christian message applies to that, bring about the word of Christ, and the ideal is to bring them to a point of discipleship. A challenge, and those within the secret church movement will tell you this, the challenge is often people like the good stuff and they never want to go beyond that. And they were serving a church that was several thousand members and they had a sense of, we're really not talking about discipleship. We need to change where we're going. And they lost members. They grew in faithfulness, they grew in depth, But in numbers, they shrank. They haven't disappeared. They're still still a faithful church. But as they changed their direction to discipleship, they lost members. It's easy to speak only of the joys and the benefits of following Jesus Christ. But this chapter reminds us that sometimes that path can lead to a time of suffering and even persecution. At Jesus Christ, we saw with him great power and promise at the baptism, where we hear the voice of God the Father, this is my son, and the Holy Spirit in the presence of a dove descending. But the same Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness for testing. In his ministry, he had great confidence preaching and speaking the truth about God, challenging, correcting views of Scripture And yet his path led to the cross and to suffering. I love the triumph of Easter. And I love hearing the Hallelujah Chorus. And yes, it's October, but I'm really looking forward to hearing it in about six months from now in in April. And I love seeing the the Easter lilies in front of the sanctuary. And every year I take a picture of them. I mean, you go through my photo albums and it comes around April or March and there's the picture from the same poses. I mean, I think I've got about the same two or three poses I do every year, the same thing. I love to see it and I love the triumph of that day. But to get to that day and the flowers and the music, you gotta go through Monday, Thursday and you gotta go through Good Friday and you gotta wait on Saturday. Some years ago, I came across these words from Elizabeth Elliot, a missionary. In fact, our first husband died as a martyr. And she said, the will of God is love. And the love of God is not a sentiment in the divine mind. It's a purpose for the world. It's a sovereign and eternal purpose for every individual life. We follow the one who said, my yoke is easy, and yet his own pathway led straight to the cross. If we follow him sooner or later, we must encounter that cross. So how can we say that the will of God leads to joy? We can't possibly say it unless we look beyond the cross. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And for what Paul could see beyond Jerusalem, he could set his own face in that direction and continue to preach and teach wherever he found himself. And later, when he is chained to a guard, he's saying, hmm, this guard isn't going anywhere. Let me tell you about Jesus. (laughs) True captive audience uh, for, for, for Paul. Now, as I said at 845, I really don't have this neat wrap up to this message. I don't have any automatic application that you can take away except to say that wherever you are in your walk, there is a message in these words to you. Maybe it's just a warning, a caution, I should say, that this is, or a reminder, this is part of the journey. Maybe you find yourself serving in a way and saying, this is a very dark place. Are you there? The Holy Spirit is saying, yes, I am. I was there with Paul, and I'm there with you. Maybe these are words of comfort, and maybe these are words of challenge, and maybe these are even words of correction. Wherever you find yourself today, through these words, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, and my prayer is that you would listen to what the Spirit has called you. In Jesus' name, amen.